We are in business. Okay, now where did you go? Yeah, I heard some of your other interviews. I'm like, oh, I'm excited to interview you. One, because you're amazing, but two, because your sound quality is so amazing. Like, oh, God, this is going to sound so good. Yay. Oh, good. <laughs> Likewise. I mean, I hate, I, and I listened to some of your episodes and I, I love the one how you got fake fired. <laughs> what a crazy story. Welcome to Entrepreneur Struggle where each week we talk to founders and freelancers about their journey creating and scaling up their business. My name is Chris Colbert, and I'm the founder and CEO of the media company DCP Entertainment, as well as the video and podcast recording space, Podstream Studios Times Square. These conversations have been recorded with a live audience on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, and we've brought you the best moments from our conversation, discussing the various struggles that founders have had to face. If you'd like to be part of the live conversations where we allow the audience to participate, please follow me on Instagram at Chris Colbert Report. In this conversation, I'm talking to Becky Margiata. She is the founder of the Social Change Agency, the host of Unleashing Social Change podcast, and the author of Impact with Integrity, Repairing the World Without Breaking Yourself. Becky's energy and passion as an activist are incredible. And I'm excited for you to hear our conversation about how she balances all the areas of her activism, how she was able to bounce back after a major PR crisis, and how she's able to balance her time and money. You started in, I say started, but in your adult life and and in your career started in the Army. How did you go from the army to now working on social change? Like, it's not necessarily the mode of, of, that's not the path I would think someone would take to get into activism. No, it's an unusual path. Uh, when I was my plebeer at West Point, they ask you, Canis, that was my maiden name, where are you going to be in 10 years? And I was like, I'm going to be in the Peace Corps, sir. And they were like, oh, God, you know, and they were like, <laughs> like, like, you know, hazing me for that. And I have always felt this this call to service, um, which took me to West Point in the first place, but how I got out of that into specifically working directly on social change. Um, I served for nine years, but the whole time I kept to myself that I identified as a gay woman. And um, so I, it was before, it was during, before and during the don't ask, don't tell policy. So I couldn't tell the truth about who I was. And it just got to a point where I didn't want to lie about that anymore. So I resigned my commission and um, I didn't go directly into social service. I was a, a stockbroker for a while um, and I, I, I felt kind of lost. I went through a difficult breakup and uh, I had a, a, a puppy that died. And um, the, the puppy that died was kind of the final straw where I was like, okay, from now on, I'm only going to do things that I have zero ambivalence about. And within a matter of weeks, I found my way to Times Square working for Roseanne Hegarty. Just total luck, total luck. And so the work that you were doing here in Times Square, I know a lot of the work that you were doing early in that activism space was around homelessness. Can you talk about, I guess, what you were yeah. really focusing on here in, in New York, as many you know, major cities around the country and around the world have a lot of homelessness issues. Like, what were you working on yeah. to try to help in that in that facet? Yeah. So, so my boss was, uh, her name is Roseanne Haggerty. She's just, just brilliant, brilliant genius woman. And she had a lot of supportive housing, which is housing for people who had experienced homelessness and, um, low income housing combined with social supports. And she had the most of that in New York city. She, she's like, I got tons of housing. Why am I walking past the same people on 43rd street every day? And what's going on here? And she learned about 
that England had something they called the Rough Sleepers Initiative and that they were able to get rough sleeping down by 75% in four or five years. And what's rough sleeping? I'm sorry. Street homelessness. It's their, that's their euphemism for street homelessness. And so uh, she said, well, if they can do that here, how can we do that? Or if they can do that there, how can we do that here? And so she went from being a supportive housing developer and provider to saying, let's actually crack the nut on what's going on in street homelessness. And for whatever reason, and this is part of her genius, she was like, I think I need someone with a military background. I mean, everybody else would be like, I need a social worker. I need whatever. But Roseanne had it in her brain somehow. I need someone who knows logistics, which I didn't even do logistics. It just was like, I feel like it was one of those moments that was kind of grace meant to be. Uh, But as soon as we, I was at that same time, really desperate to do something I felt zero ambivalence about, but I didn't know any really thing about homelessness. I had sort of a, an uncarved block, just, just open mind and, and curiosity and a commitment to it. And she just set me loose in Times Square. And my, my job was to get street homelessness in Times Square down by two thirds in three years. Wow. That's, that's a lot. And we did, we got it down by, we needed one more year. We needed four years, but we got it down by 87%. This was in 2003 to like the 2007 timeframe the team, the team that I got to work with. So I hired them all and they, they were amazing. And I did hire social workers, you know, and, uh, um, and so other cities saw, oh, wow. Times Square in 2007 looked markedly different from Times Square in 2004, 2000, it was, you know, massively different. And, and other cities were like, how'd you do that? And so we started doing these like kind of mini trainings to teach them how we did it. And then we started going to those cities to help them do it. And the 100,000 Homes campaign grew out of years and years of working with dozens of cities and doing the work myself with my team on Times Square. And it it aggregated everything we knew to create some large-scale social change in the homelessness sector. It's so interesting that you started, in at least in the activism space, started on homelessness, because that actually was how I wanted to start DCP. The whole original idea was I was going to do this homeless documentary series because I wanted to help end homelessness. But I was looking at it in the way of like, how do we plug the hole as we're emptying water out as what you all were doing? Like, how do we plug the hole? And I, I remember this video of like these homeless people in Orlando and they're all holding up these signs. And, you know, they're just talking about like how they became homeless or what they did in their career before they came homeless. And there's doctors, there's NFL players. There's a woman saying like, I chose to be homeless over, you know, my husband abusing my children. Uh, You know, I got cancer. And it's like, you notice that all of us, many of us, I won't say all, but many of us are just one piece of bad luck, one medical bill, you know, one death in the family away from becoming homeless. So, you know, with that understanding, working with homeless people, did it maybe change your outlook on the world or, you know, within your career that, you know, just working with them maybe changed certain aspects of what your, your, your trajectory became? Oh, hugely, Chris. And by the way, I haven't seen that video, but it, I'm, it sounds very moving. And I love that you wanted, you're, you're committed to that issue as well. Um, I, I, I had an open mind. Um, my preconceived notions coming from the military was somewhat probably more conservative, like we'll probably help them get jobs. You know, that was just my assumption. And, um, and then I went out on the streets and listened to people and said, Hey, what's up? What's going on? And I watched the paid outreach teams walk past people. And I'd say, why'd you just walk past that person? They'd say, ah, they don't want help. I'm like, how do you know? They just don't want what you're offering. They don't want shelter or a sock, but you know, and I would go back and say, do you want housing? And they, or what do you want? And they'd say, I want my own apartment. So again and again and again, we heard people say they wanted their own apartment because our team was so small. I was literally doing direct human services myself. So 
you know, someone comes in Friday night, would always happen Friday night, just before we're about to call it a day, you know, someone comes in and, and wants to go into drug treatment. And we're like, all right, we're doing this, you know, and we would go with them to uh, St. Luke's Hospital, right? You know, all the, to, we would go with them down to St. Vincent's, wherever there was an opening. And we, and we had to stay with them until they got admitted because the hospital would just give them some aspirin and send them on their way. And like, okay, there goes your Friday night. But like, I spent years sort of um, accompanying people through the really crappy shoots and ladders game that people have to to navigate, but it changed me. I, I had just gone through a, a difficult breakup and, and I think started it in some ways feeling sorry for myself. And probably there were layers of white saviorism into this too, but there was something about um, the, the, the suffering that I saw people experiencing on the streets was orders of magnitude worse than what I was suffering. And it just many nights on the way home, I would find myself sobbing and crying. Like I took, I take the train home and I'd get on that kind of dark walk from wherever the train led off to my apartment. Um, I would just feel these sobs coming up. And, and in a weird way, there was this healing in it for me of like, well, at least I'm not feeling sorry for myself anymore. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't, it wasn't even pity. It was, it was compassion. It was, God, I can't believe how, how difficult this must be for this person, you know, the pain that they're in. And, um, so it did change me. I think it, it, it healed my heart in some ways. Um, and then in so many other ways of just understanding systems and structures and how they're designed to fail people and not to be a total bummer. But, you know, I, I think when I first started my, I think I, I, I looked at things and, and again, I think this is due to like 53 years of conditioning as a white person, but like, as like individual, like, well, they, you know, like, could they make different choices? You know, not, not entirely, but that was sort of part of my mindset. But now not to in any way deny that we all have agency and we all have choices and some are good and some are bad, but no bad choice should result in you like, like not having a place to go to the bathroom or to lay your head without being worried about someone kicking you or setting you on fire. You know, I mean, no, there's no amount of bad decisions that should, you know, if, especially if you're not hurting anybody or anything. And, and some would argue, you know, even if you're, you know, there's no decisions that should result in, in that being your experience in a, in a country where we have this much. Well, I think you bring up a, a really great point too, in terms of like, when you were talking to them, you talked to them, you didn't try to helicopter in and say that this is what you need. You actually no. talk to them and, and ask them, what do you need? And, and I think in conversations I've had with people who have been homeless or even like in the foster care system, a lot of times, like you said, they just want a home because that really is the first step in getting a job. And like, if you don't have an address, you can't get a job. You can't do a lot of things. And so like, that really is that first step, putting them into a place where now they can actually go out and be a part of the world. But you need a home to actually be part of the world. Absolutely. And and we saw that again and again and again. Um, and and But because of this, like kind of like Protestant work ethic is so ingrained in our society what what I found out the longer I did the work was was I would go to people and say, hey, what do you need? What do you want? And sometimes they would say, I need a job. And I'd be like, no, no, that's not what you need. You need a house first so you can go to your job, so you can have an alarm clock and you know, take a shower and do all the things you need to do. And so we would sort of disabuse them of the notion that they needed a job first, you know, and so, uh, and not to be paternalistic in any way, but yes, the foundation of the program was in listening, Just total open-ended questions and, 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 we learned because people told us. Well, you also mentioned too, like going home and like feeling so down like and crying and, and just really taking on so much of that emotion because you're dealing in so much trauma and pain. Like 
the stories mm-hmm. I can only imagine that you had to hear of what these people have been through. It sounded like early on, and maybe it's still the case, like it was hard for you to separate your own emotions out of that. It, was yeah. there eventually a point for you where you were able to kind of give yourself some separation, like still be empathetic, but still give yourself some separation in terms of taking on that, that energy at the same time? Yeah, I think over time, I, I think over time and as my own heart healed, then I could be like, okay, I'm going to show up. This is hundred percent for them. And I'm going to take care of myself, right? That there's that, that's some of that balance. Um, but even as I was working on the hundred thousand homes campaign, like every minute I wasn't like on a phone call or traveling to a city or doing something like that was a minute that like a city wasn't housing 50 or hundred people a day. But there was, as I lived in downtown LA and there was this dude, uh, that would sleep outside my apartment down, uh, down by 11th and grand. And, and I'd, I'd go get my coffee every day and I'd be like, Oh, I gotta do it. I gotta do it. You know? And it, and it, it takes a lot of time to work with one person, but I couldn't not, especially knowing who I knew and the social capital I had at that point. Um, but, uh, th- there's like over time, I feel like there, in some ways, b- when working at the larger scale, I felt like I had to almost carve that off so that I could focus at the scale level. And, and that also doesn't feel good, right. To, to not just stop and help everybody who's in front of you if you can, you know? And so, um, and that guy did get into housing thanks to this wonderful woman, Molly Lowry and her program. And so, yeah, it, it, it got better over time to answer your, your original question. Sorry, I blabbed on there. Oh, no, not at all. Please. No, I thought that was an excellent point. And I also, you know, I'm interested to, you went from, you know, being in the service to now being a civilian and, and you know, civilian business life. Were there challenges mm-hmm. going from, you know, that very, I'm assuming very structured uh, yes. uh, service industry into now working, uh, you know, in the civilian world? Two major huge differences from military to civilian world, in particular to the nonprofit sector. Um, one is the military is set up so that there are non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers. And the non-commissioned officers are the backbone of the army. They run the place. They know how it works. They've been there forever. And then the commissioned officers, like little bright-eyed, bushy-tailed idiots like me, come out of West Point thinking we know something. And if you're lucky, the non-commissioned officer takes you under their wings and says, hey, listen, LT, this is how it is. you know, And you listen, right? Listen again. Um, if you're arrogant, then they sabotage you. right? If you're like, I know everything, they're like, watch this. you know. And they kind of make you look stupid or fail. So, uh, but as you progress and th- there's this almost like, uh, I hate to use cop illustration, but like, there's like a good cop, bad cop. So you always have a partner and you can divide and conquer on the roles and responsibilities. And sometimes I'd be the good guy. Sometimes I'd be the bad guy. We'd just be like, okay, let's do this. And I had like, it's almost like you're, you have two leaders together working in sync with each other. You don't have that in the civilian sector uh, by most designs. The other thing is the military spends so much money training people and, and begging anybody to be part of it, for God's sakes, that let's say someone's not doing well, their performance is poor, that they, they can't pass the PT test, they can't do it, or they're just, they have a disciplinary problem, whatever the case may be. All of the culture in the military is like, your job as a leader is to retain that soldier. Like if you have to get up at four in the morning and go running with him so he can pass the weight test, that's your job. Like, you know, it is your responsibility to make sure everybody can keep their job and can serve. And everybody who was like, let go, you know, 99% of people let go was almost seen as like a a loss. Right. Um, But in the civilian sector, I went into it with that mindset and I was like, I can't fire anybody. I've got to make it work. You know, I've got to figure it out. And one of the like really hard lessons that I had to learn was in the civilian sector, it's just, that's not how it works. Like you got to 
I mean, I think it's really important to be in the times when we do have to fire people or choose to fire people, we don't have to fire anybody. But in the times when we do choose to let someone go, even if it's ourselves, you know, that we do so in a way that's 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 uh, human-centered, ethical, uh, and especially if we're the ones who change our minds, that we do our best to make sure it doesn't cause financial harm to them. You know, it's just much more part of the mix in the civilian world to fire people. And that's been really hard for me. That's, it's always hard for me to fire people. I, w- I wish it was easy. And you also kind of mentioned that firing yourself. And, and yeah, firing never gets easy. But yeah, especially when you're firing yourself, that's not easy. <laughs> uh, and I guess that kind of leads me into you created the Social Change Agency or co-founded mm-hmm. that. And so can you talk about what led to the creation of that and also then why you stopped doing that? Yeah. So, okay. Well, I was the director of the 100,000 Homes campaign. Um, I learned from uh, the Hendricks Institute this concept of genius, which is like, what are you great at? What do you love doing? What do you lose track of time? And I tracked for seven weeks what my genius was versus my not genius. And I realized that on average, over seven weeks, I was serving in my capacity as the director of the 100,000 Homes campaign, 42% my genius. And, and I was like, these are the things that I can roll out of bed and do, and I'm great. It's great every time. These are the things that like, I'm not at the top of my license. I'm not the best. There's other people on the team that are better. So I went to my boss, Roseanne, such an entrepreneurial person. I said, how about this? Take me a pay cut. Let me go to, to 80%. I'll work four days a week instead of five. Um, and only have me do these things. And let's carve out these things that I'm bad out to these three other people. Give them the money you took away from me and everybody's going to be happy. And Roseanne was like, done. And so, so for the last year or so of the 100,000 Homes campaign, I had one day a week free to build my own next business. And the social change agency was, was taking things I had learned about conscious leadership and, and, and specifically applying them in the social sector with my team and, and, and my wife and I co-founded it together of who she also works a lot in social change um, of how can we teach people how to apply these skills for doing social change from a place of integrity with conscious leadership. And it was just a side hustle, you know, the whole, and, and uh, when the hundred thousand homes campaign concluded, I was like, well, I guess I'll do the, I'll just, I'll just do the social change agency. You know, I'll just ramp up to full time and try to build out that business. Can, should I, can I tell you a little story about how the Billions Institute got founded though? That, that this is, so at the end of the um, 100,000 Homes campaign, I got a call from the, uh, or an email from the TED Prize people. It's, uh, the, and they said, Becky, you're a finalist for the TED Prize. Um, you need to submit your wish for the world in 50 words or less. And if we really like your wish, we're going to give you a million dollars. And I was, I thought for sure it was a prank. I thought my team was playing a prank. And then I realized it was real, you know, like we're like trying to yank the wig off of somebody, you know, in an Austin Powers movie. And I found it was real. And I was like, oh, there must be like 500 finalists. There were 13. Like I really should have taken it more seriously. But they said, call your friends, you know, don't put it on social media, but call your friends, get, get your fit, get your work, wish for the world. And so I called Joe McCannon, one of, one of several people. And I was like, dude, they're going to want me to do homelessness. I was like, I, I care about it, but I feel like I kind of like, I get it. You know what I mean? Like I want to pass the, 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 the baton on to other people because it's not it's not intellectually as stimulating to me. I feel like I got it. And, and it's now I'm just irritated, you know, that it still exists and uh, which, you know, people do need to continue on the work. And I'm so grateful that people do. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, you could do like the million homes campaign. You know, I was like, yeah, I don't want to. 
And uh, I was like, what I really want to do is start a school that teaches people how to do social change. And Joe was like, I want to start a country. And I was like, dude, that's cool. What? And he's like, yeah, I want to start a virtual country where like people pull resources and, 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 and exercise direct democracy. And I was like, dude, that's cool. And he's like, do you want to put my wish in? And I was like, I was like, dude, it's your wish. So, and I, but I went with my heart and I was like, I want to put a school on how to do large scale social change um, and, and teach people how to do the things that, that I did in the 100,000 Homes campaign, but in other sectors and other arenas, stopping human trafficking, you know, spreading solutions to blindness, whatever the case may be. Um, and I didn't get the prize, you know, and, and of course they were expecting me to do something on homelessness. And, um, but I called Joe the day after we spoke and said, I was like, dude, I don't really want the Ted prize. That's like a million dollar pair of handcuffs. You know, if you're going to do something big in the world, a million dollars isn't even enough. And he was like, yeah, it's really true. And I was like, I think I want to go into business with you. You want to hang out a shingle? And Joe was like, I was thinking the same thing. So, so Joe, who's Mr. Large-Scale Change, he had done a 100,000 Lives campaign in healthcare. We really, on that phone call, the Billions Institute, really, the way we combined it, came into being. And then I just wrapped everything I was excited about in the Social Change Agency into the Billions Institute. And we let the, we let the Social Change Agency go. Nice. Well, and that's where, you, you know, sometimes you have to pivot because your, your, your goal isn't just, and I've talked about this with other founders, you know, your goal isn't necessarily just success. It's trying to accomplish something in the world. And so you found a better way to accomplish what you're trying to, you know, the change that you're trying to create. And so now you're pivoting the business into something different to be able to affect that change. Absolutely. And, and Joe, Joe, a couple of weeks later, Joe was out in LA and we did like our first retreat, just the two of us, you know, in the conference room of my apartment is complex. And, um, so I have this, this exercise that I know and I help others do of like, what's your high dream? What's your biggest vision for what we could do? And Joe just off the cuff was like, I don't know. Like, I mean, what if in the next 20 years we help people solve some of the world's biggest problems? And I was like, I like that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then we were off to the races and that became our purpose was like, how can we help people who have solutions to really vexing and complicated social problems, spread those solutions to everyone who can benefit. And the people who need it most are usually the last to get it, you know, so how can we help, you know, really as a matter of justice, get solutions to everyone who could possibly benefit and people have the, the muscle for how to do large scale change. What you've done has been featured in places like 60 Minutes, the New York Times. You've been awarded the White House uh, uh, Champion of Change Award and the Schwab Foundation Social Entrepreneur of the Year. Like, very accomplished when it comes to credits. And I know that's not why you do it. But it's also mm -hmm. interesting, as I was looking through some of those credits, I also noticed that there was, you know, uh, I guess a CBS Evening News piece that, you know, really was around the work that you all were doing in California, but it was also around the work that you know, other people were doing. And yet, yeah. unfortunately, something that was supposed to be really great for, you know, really elevating what you all were doing turned into something that was kind of negative in terms of you working with these other organizations because, CBS unfortunately gave you guys maybe more credit than what you all had wanted. And so can you maybe tell, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm being very ambiguous about telling this. So I want you to tell yeah, the story, yeah. but yeah, can you no, talk about that? Story you, and also let you know, like, yeah, how did you manage that? Cause that oh my like God. a really tough experience. It was such a nightmare. It was such a nightmare. So, um, you know, credit and recognition are such an important thing. And, and this guy, Don Berwick, he says, credit is infinitely divisible. Like you want to be someone who gives credit and recognition, not seeks credit and recognition. And that just wasn't really on my radar. Like I, we were just like, Hey, let's try to get the word out. You know, let's try to get the word out. And CBS evening news, we got them and they followed us around and they saw what we were doing, which all we were doing was helping communities 
using a methodology, really identify by, by name and, and, and do some sort of triage of everybody who's out on the streets who for really mostly part, they had left kind of left to die. Right. And so, um, uh, and then they were housing people, but this 60 minutes piece, and we, it didn't even occur to us to manage it closely, but w- when it ran, um, they said, Oh, can we get someone who's in housing? And we're like, Oh yeah, go talk to St. Joseph center, um, in Venice. And, and when they, when it ran, um, and they didn't do their fact checking or they're just kind of sloppy in their journalism, but they, they, they made it look like my, my team had housed the people that St. Joseph center had housed. So we, unwittingly got credit for something that they did. And, um, you know, trust is so important. I mean, it really set our relationships back a long time. It said, and, 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 and I can swear on a thousand Bibles that that was like not our intention or whatever. But I think when, when there's a context where credit and recognition is so important and so essential, and there's so much scarcity in the nonprofit sector, that credit and recognition is so essential to, to them and their work and we just blew it. We blew it bad. And it not only did that, that harm that relationship, which we ended up repairing, but then the, the county supervisor in LA who oversaw, I mean, these county supervisors have more power than God, who oversaw all of Western Los Angeles, where there's like tons of homelessness occurs, um, went around and told other organizations not to partner with us because we'll take credit for their work. And so, and we're like, this is like ground zero of homelessness. And and now we have like the elected official telling people or their deputy, their person running around telling people not to, not to partner with us. And we're like, it was, it was, it was really, um, it was a very, very difficult disaster. But when we did the 60 minutes piece, we learned from it and, uh, and we were like, this cannot be about us. We need to be the postscript, you know, this needs to be about how great Nashville is doing. And that one turned out really well. And I wanted to bring it up, too, because I think in this journey as an entrepreneur, again, even if you're just freelancing, a lot of times there's things that happen that are out of your control in terms of how it can negatively affect your business. And so in that moment, I I can only imagine watching that piece and being super excited. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see something like, oh, my God, you just start sweating. Like, how do you go from this from shock to now going in Mm -hmm. action of like, how do I go on the offense when Mm -hmm. I'm very much defensive right now? Oh yeah. We were like eating the popcorn and like, Oh my, and they were like, Oh no, Oh no, Oh no. And like right away on the phones, there's something about an impulse to turn toward, to face, to face what's happening and turn towards others with authenticity and sincerity and curiosity and humility. Um, that just, you can't go wrong, I, you know, again and again and again, even if it, they're not like, oh my God, I totally understand. Here's some rainbows and some unicorns. You know, it was, it was hard on the relationship, but I do think the, the, the instinct to turn toward with humility and curiosity and sincere apology uh, is, is essential again and again and again in life, right? Like, cause we're going to get knocked around. That's, that's just, that comes with the territory. No, that's true. And, and yeah, I think, Sometimes, you know, I know if I was in that situation, I might, you know, the first reaction might be, oh, I need to get defensive and be like, oh, no, this wasn't us, you know, blame, you know, CBS mm-hmm. Evening News. But then, the, you know, what good does that really do? Like, you know, focusing on the positive, how can we move forward is where you have to go. But it, it can be tough to try to get yourself into that mind state. Oh, totally. And and you're so right, because looking back, like we were like, oh, my God, that was CBS Evening News. And, and they didn't even believe us. You know, I mean, they were like, yeah, right. You know, and I was like, no, I swear to God, you know, and so, right. The blame was just, 
I, in retrospect, it would have been a better, but like, I am just heartstruck that this happened. How can we make it right? You know, how can we make it right? Yeah. And um, versus like, I can't believe CBS Evening News did that. Yeah. You're, you're so right about that, Chris. Yeah. Sometimes you have to, even when it's not your fault, you just take, you take it on yourself to say, how can I be better? Or how can we move? Or how can I be part of that change to help us all moving forward? Amen. And, yeah. And you mentioned too, you know, with both of the businesses that you founded, you know, working with your, your wife and can you talk a little bit about like maybe some of the benefits of working with your partner, but also the downsides that could come from that. I know just, I come from a family that had, you know, family working in, in family business and that can sometimes be a strain on personal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think any issues that you have in, in your relationship will, will come out wherever you are. Right. And so we, we had a thing with my, my partner and I, where, um, I'm more extroverted and she's more introverted and I'll kind of talk first. And then she'll really, she's one of those people who waits for there to be a gap in the conversation before she inserts herself. And then sometimes she just never gets in, you know, and, and I'm over there like, get in there. You got good. You have better things to say than I do, you know? And she's like, she's like, you know, like, well, if you'd be quiet, I could, you know? And so, and so we've, there've been many times where we're like co-facilitating or, you know, teaching together where, where I've had to learn how to really make space, um, for people, not in a, um, not in a way that doesn't like that, like that they can't do that themselves or anything, but like that I have, I've had to learn how to step back some because truly, um, she has massive wisdom to share, but her, her, her MO is different. So her social MO is different. So we, that's, that's been the main thing we've had to sort out. There've been, there are plenty of times where I was like, why didn't you say something? And she was like, why didn't you shut up? You know? And so, Yeah. I, I do that even even it's not my partner or my chief operating officer at DCP. Like a lot of times I can get in that mode. We'll be on a call and like, I'll go off on like a 30 minute monologue. And then I'm like, do you want to add something? It's like, you just said everything. <laughs> what did you leave for me to say? And I'm like, oh yeah, I did it again. My fault. <laughs> totally. No, I, I get that. I'm guilty of that myself many times. You also mentioned early on too, like obviously you started working around the homelessness aspect, but then you, as you were talking about, you know, not wanting to just focus there, you had these other aspirations of focusing on human trafficking and climate change, racial justice, education. Mm -hmm. How do you balance trying to accomplish all you want in the world without trying to, without taking on too much that now you're not accomplishing anything and, or just running yourself into the ground? Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's, um, self self care and not like you know not in a fake way like well, here here's how i've made it work for me and this is like massive massive privilege right is is for we've we've lucked out out of the gate with me and joe joe and i co-founded billions institute together and we've we've never been um there've been a couple times when i've been like kind of like biting my nails about revenue coming in but we've been busy like it, there is a genuine need and we've been able to sort it out to where we've had a profitable business every year but the the pandemic the first year of the pandemic was a, was a gut punch right but that was true for everybody but you would do um, a lot of so, in person events and that's why that had such yeah. a large strain on on your business 100%. 100% of our revenue on March 13th 2020 was from live in person events so we had to pivot hard um but how I've done it for me and my team, I, I just try to be human centered and people centered. And, um, we've, we've had the luxury of, of maybe, and this is maybe a bad thing of not having to be super scrappy. This could be our downfall, 
right? Like we're, we're busy and we're doing things, but we can pace ourselves. So I'll have, I'll, for me personally, it works really well because we've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old and I want to be there for their childhood. But all of these really intensive kind of bursts of three weeks in a row in the UK training the National Health Service, but we're, we're generating a lot of our revenue in that really intensive work. And then I'm home for two months with, you know, and, and yeah, do stuff. Somehow my calendar just fills up every day, but um, not necessarily with revenue generating things like, you know, like we're, and so, so for me, it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's like a snake eating a a, a gopher or something. (laughs) There's these just big chunks of work where I'm like all in. And then I just, I go into like goof off mode and just like, let that not be the most important thing. That was really hard to do during the pandemic though. to have like that, that, that super intense burst and then spaciousness, which is where the creativity comes from of the next thing for me, like, okay, I'm going to be productive and then I'm going to be really creative and spacious. Um, it was really hard during the pandemic because we, you know, we had our kids at home and my, my wife and I were both owned or executive directors of businesses. And I had the kids in the afternoons while she worked and she had the kids in the mornings while I worked. So, you know, our work days got cut in half and there was just, it was it, every, everybody had to figure that out, right? Um, but that I, I wasn't able to do the bursts of work and the spaciousness for you know about eighteen months. But the rest of the time, that works for me. I can only imagine that having two kids. You said six and eight, like that. Is there a a balance that you now try to have with the children and still trying to run these businesses? And or if you're not necessarily balancing, is there an, a guilt there of like? not feeling like you're you're able to be fully present with them because there's so much else going on. Yeah. You know, here's what we figured out. So, so basically what we figured out during the pandemic was like, even though we weren't profitable that one year, we did kind of figure it out to where I was working four hours a day. So I got, (laughs) I, I got more efficient and was able to focus on the more important things. Right. And so now the kids are back in school from eight to two and like, poof, all of a sudden I have two more hours that I didn't have, you know? And so, um, so I've, I've expanded to where my intention is to get what I need to get done to be of service in the world and keep the, keep the business running and in a, in a, in a way that's of service and, and functional, but while the kids are in school. So, um, uh, and now we have the after school stuff. So it just kind of like, you know, pr- like capitalism and productivity kind of sneaks in, you know? And so I'm like, Sometimes I do the walk of shame and I'm the last one to pick them up. But um, most days I pick up the kids around 4.30 and then I'm done. And I feel great about that. And then they have my full attention. Like I'm not, I'm not distracted. I'm not trying to get things done. And um, I, 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 oh, this is the other thing I want to share. When you own a small business as an entrepreneur, um, you're not salaried. Correct. Which is a blessing and a curse, right? Because when you're salaried, it's just like, hey, you do what you do and you get what you get. Um, but when it's your own business and when you're the business owner, um, make it, take it. Like I can do more and I can make more money. And yes, I want to distribute that to the employees as well. But um, I used, my wife and I do this practice where um, every, like at the end of every year, we say for the next year, how much money is plenty of money for everything we need and want to do next year? And then we put a number to it and we know her salary. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go make the difference. Right. But, but last year I asked her, cause she manages the money. I'm terrible with this stuff. I asked her, I get an allowance and I still blow it. <laughs> so, and uh, last year I asked her how little money can I make? And we're still all right. 
And, you know, she gave me a number and it was like half of what I used to be doing. And I, so I've calibrated my business now to almost like min specs. You know what I mean? Like, like, because I want to optimize for other things, because it can just take, it, there's something about it where it just, there's just this sort of, um, more is better, uh, in the air that, that, um, I feel like I have to actively guard against and work against. Well, and I think, um, I know I kind of went through that too, in terms of like, just trying to, uh, just kind of restructure my life to, to be able to do all the things that I want to do. And I think, you know, one of the things that you have in your book, and I haven't had a chance to fully read it, but just in everything that I was reading in terms of like the feedback on it and uh, the work that you're doing in there really is around teaching others to do what you've done in terms of maybe working four hour days so you can really enjoy mm-hmm. life. And that will re-energize you for the work that you're going to do and probably make you better in business. Can you talk a little about like what led you to creating this book, Impact with Integrity, Repair the World Without Breaking Yourself? And what maybe, you know, that has done for you or for others that have been able to, to learn from that? Yeah. So I, I set out um, back in 2019, early 2019, to write a book about our model for unleashing, the way we teach how to do large-scale change. We define success as orchestrating the loss of control of thousands of people you'll never meet, you know, moving in the right direction. And I was like, I'm going to write a book about the model for unleashing. And I got like a month or two into the project and I was like, that's not the book that wants to be written right now. Like, I want to write a book about the, not about the design part. I want to write a book about the leadership part because that's what I'm really passionate about. And if I'm going to be talking about things on, you know, like I want to be talking about things I'm like really, 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 really most passionate about. I still want to write the unleashing book. That's next. But, um, I just, I've done so many executive coaching sessions with, with, with social change leaders, nonprofit executives, senior project directors, and seen again and again and again, the ways that we, we get in our own way and, and done it myself that I wanted to like give this gift to people of, of you don't have to hire me as your coach. Like you can just read this book and this is what I would have told you as a coach, you know, of to do these things and to just kind of capture in one place the things that I found myself again and again and again and again helping people with. I got it all in one place. I feel, and I feel really very, by the way, I needed a lot of help to get it done, but I'm very grateful for the help and very, I feel really, really happy that it's out there. It feels like, like a little bird flew from the nest, you know, it's its own thing now. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that. And what I I was kind of mentioning before, like I was kind of restructuring my life and I kind of forgot where I was trying to go with that. But I just want to return to that where you were talking about just uh, taking a pay cut to essentially allow the business to do more. And but at the same time, still allow you to live. And but I think another way you can do that, like if you have hobbies. So for myself, like I love taking photography, like I love doing photography. And so now I will sell through Getty or Shutterstock or, you know, even trying to put up my own website. Now that can be passive income that will make me money. So I now can make less money through the business or I'll do podcasting courses and make money through that. So again, I can pay myself less money through the company. And now that money can go more towards the employees or more towards creating what I want to create. So there's multiple Uh, ways to kind of restructure your own pay. So that's not all coming out of the business. I am. I love those ideas. Have you ever heard that saying, um, you need to make money while you sleep because you sleep a lot. (laughs) Like that, like that's the dream, right? Passive income. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah. Those it's, uh, I'd I'd love to see the links to your photographs, by the way. Oh, thank you. I'll I'll definitely make sure I share them. Um, but also, you know, that brings me into self-care because for me, photography is that self-care. Like that's what forces me to go out in nature. I love taking photography of, of landscapes and, 
it forces me to be in the woods alone and just take deep, deep breaths. And if I don't, you know, do photography, a lot of times I'll just be inside working all day. And so again, I'm kind of making it also a hobby that makes money for me, but that is my way of self-care. And I know a lot of, obviously in this book, you're teaching people how to do self-care, but I know that even as much as I talk about taking care of yourself and, and emotional well-being and all that, I still backslide and, and I'm kind of hypocritical in my own advice at times. Do you find it challenging at times to kind of stay on top of all the things that you do to keep that balance? Oh, yeah. And it's endemic in the nonprofit sector. There's this great study, Well-Being Inspires Well-Doing, that just the percentage of people who are experiencing burnout or like that their job is detrimental to their mental health is really, it's it's really high. Um, so I, for me, my greatest self-care is actually attending to my mental and emotional health. Um, because if, if, and, and, like, it sounds like for you being out in wilderness does that. And there, you know, there's like forest baths. Absolutely. Like there's tons of research that just being in wilderness is in and of itself, de facto healing and good for your mental health and emotional health. Um, and, and, and the part of this, the things that I point to in the book that if your agreements are off or you have something you want to say, but you just can't get yourself to say it or, you know, somebody's micromanaging you or you're feeling that kind of oppression of that in some way and you don't know what to do about it. Even for me, even if I'm in a walk in the woods, I'm just ruminating and like bitching to myself in my head about this thing. So, so a, a big part of my, my own kind of practice and mental health is, is putting into practice the things that are in this book so that then when I go to the botanic gardens, I can just enjoy it versus just be bitching to myself in my head, you know, which, cause I've spent like way too much time doing that over the years and years. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up. It's something I've really thought about lately of like, I spend a lot of emotional energy having conversations in my head with somebody without actually having the conversation with that person. I'm taking on all the negative emotion of what could happen negatively in this conversation <laughs> Oh yeah. without actually having, and a lot of times I'll have the conversation and it's not negative at all, but I've exerted so much energy just mapping out in my head what <laughs> you know, what's going to happen if I, you know, bring this up or have this conversation. So yeah, I've realized I have to take a step back and sometimes, and yes, it's good to pre-plan and think about, you know, where things might go, but don't harp on it so much that now you've already exhausted yourself before you have the conversation. Absolutely. I, I spent, um, literally weeks riding the Q train from, from Brooklyn into, into the city, uh, rehearsing, quitting to my boss who I love dearly. <laughs> Like, I love this woman dearly, but I would have these imaginary conversations in my head of like, she's going to criticize you for that, which maybe she wasn't even criticizing me, right? Like, maybe it was just feedback, but I interpreted it as criticism. And then I'm going to be like, but you don't understand. And then she's going to say this. And then I'm going to say that and be like, I quit, you know, and like stomp off. Like, I had that conversation like probably 20, 20, 30 times in my head. And then we met and it was like a fine conversation. I'm like, what am I doing this myself? I have in the, in the book, these are the steps for speaking unarguably so that you can speak your truth in a way that has a really high likelihood of resolving the issue instead of making it worse. And it's like step by step, like, like I have to follow it myself still like, okay, what is unarguably true? Because, um, it's, it's an, it's an essential skill that can basically get you out of having those conversations in your head all the time. Well, I'm looking forward to reading through that myself and then following those guidelines. But I also still want to touch, too, on the podcast you have, uh, Unleashing Social yeah. Change podcast. And I know we, we've kind of come to the end of this current season. But what I really loved about this season was you were talking to your mentors. 
Um, mm-hmm. And actually, you started off with actually one of your mentors interviewing you because, as mm-hmm. you said in that podcast, like these mentor mentoree relationships are reciprocal. Um, yes. Even if we don't always think of them that way, we can learn from each other, even if you are the mentee, you know, speaking to the mentor. But can you talk about why you had that intention of wanting to have your mentors on this season? Yeah, you know, so for the first three seasons, I interviewed people who are leading large scale change about what they're doing and what they're learning and all that stuff. But in a lot of ways, and I love those interviews, and I think they're fascinating and the stuff that people are doing to make the world a better place are so cool. But I kind of wanted to get to the dirty laundry, you know, I kind of wanted to get to the real stuff and and be more vulnerable, be more true about what's really what's hard, what's going on. And I didn't want to ask you know, Nicole Hockley, who's like the founder of Sandy Hook Promise, whose son was massacred at Sandy Hook to be like, tell me how you suck. You know what I mean? Like, I just didn't like, I I wanted to focus on her. and But I do want to kind of pivot the podcast that way into where it's just kind of a little bit more, um, more vulnerable, more raw. And I was thinking about it and I was like, man, my mentors are just the most ballsy people in the world and they don't give a shit. You know what I mean? And so... <laughs> So I'm like, if I just call them and they were, they were like, yeah, Beck, sign me up, you know? And so, and they all shared something that I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know that about you, you know? And, 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 um, so I was like, well, and now what I feel like I can say for season five is, you know, if like the assistant secretary for peacekeeping at the United Nations can do this, you can do this. Like, let's really, let's be real with each other about what's going on, you know? And so, um, I wanted them to sort of set the bar high and they, and they delivered for sure. Oh no, it's beautiful. And, and like getting to even hear your aunt, you know, in, in that final episode of the season, like one, I, I was just, you know, joking a little bit earlier, uh, with our team of just like how my preconceived notion of like what a, a nun or sister would be as an interview. I'm like, Oh no, I want to hang and like have a beer with this lady. She is, she is so awesome. Like I wish she was my aunt and godmother. She is so amazing. But I also see why you are a lot of the way that you are. And I think that Mm -hmm. was the beauty of this season too. Like we got to learn so much more about you um, just through the people who have influenced you. That's so generous of you to say. And, and uh, I tell you what, I was stressed out about something I couldn't sleep and my aunt's on the East coast. And at four 30 this morning, I texted her and I was like, I was like, I, I need to, I, I need to call my lifeline here. And she was like, we're doing prayers. You can call me in 45 minutes. <laughs> I was like, add some extra prayers for me to the big pug in the sky. You know, like I mess with her about not really all the way believing in that stuff. Anyway, and so, um, and, and uh, she was totally there for me. And you're right. Like she's a, an amazing human being. And I've, I've just been so fortunate, right? It's like how lucky how, and for all of us that we have, we help each other, that we help each other see things that we're not noticing. And um have a different perspective on things. That's what it's all about, right? We're all, we're just all in earth school, you know? And I think what also I noticed in just those conversations, just the the different work that all the different people do. So like, I think that's just also a lesson in terms of how we surround ourselves with the right kind of people that are mm-hmm. going to help to educate us in different ways. Like you don't want all your friends to be exactly the same way. Cause you're not, you know, you're not going to get the most out of that experience. If you have people who are coming from diverse backgrounds or are working on different kinds of things. It's going to open up your perspective to the world and also just how you do business too. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I thought it's definitely a risk bringing in people um, from the military, but I'm like, give them a minute because they'll blow you away. They'll blow you away. And, and um, their leadership examples are just so, and, and their challenges are, were so profound for me to hear. Yeah. Well, I encourage everybody to check out uh, Unleashing Social Change, the podcast. Uh, also, make sure you get the Impact with Integrity book, Repair the World Without Breaking Yourself. Um, but before we wrap up here, I wanted to you know, also give you the opportunity to like, 
to talk about some of the things that have been going really well. Obviously, the book being just released, I'm sure, is one of them. But yeah, can you tell us, you know, what's been going on in your world that we can help celebrate? You know, I think the, the the book is the main thing. the The book is the main thing. What we're we're trying to do now, I've 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 put on retainer a global business developer. This is my friend Jonathan Gray, and so he's like introducing us to people in Singapore and Australia and England and Scotland. And so we're really expanding internationally, and I feel very excited about that. It's more time away from the kids, but it's back to that kind of snake eating a gopher thing. We're like, all right, I got to go to Singapore for a week, and then and then when I'm there, it's like thirty hour days. But then when I come home, I can just really relax. And I, I like that rhythm a lot. So I'm, I'm excited that we'll have more of that set up internationally soon. That's beautiful. Well, how can we stay updated on you know, everything that's happening with the Billions Institute, with you, you know, social media wise, website wise? Where can people stay updated? Yeah, if you look for Billions Institute on the Facebooks or the Twitter or whatever, you know, we're not on Insta and we're like joking about being um, ticked. I love TikTok. When you asked what's my TikTok handle, I was like, oh, I, like, I'm aspiring TikTok influencer who's never done a TikTok. <laughs> but, and then our website, billionsinstitute.com. And, and we have a newsletter where we try not to, you know, bother people, but there's, you know, just resources and things that are available for people. And even we post jobs that people have in the social sector and musings and things that, so the, the newsletter is probably the most reliable way to stay in touch. Well, you know, one, I appreciate you for, you know, coming here and being part of Entrepreneur Struggle. Two, I just really appreciate what you're doing in the world, not only just with what you're doing for the causes that you're championing, but also helping these other folks who are trying to champion their own causes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful what, you know, you're doing with the Billions Institute and also what you're doing with the book, too, and and helping us learn how to take better care of ourselves. I think, and you you talk about this in, in, in your podcast and other areas where just as activists, a lot of times we'll get into this mode of like, we just have to go, go, go. Because like yeah. any time that we're not working on that, that, you know, that project or, or you know, a, a particular topic, we're wasting time or we're not, you know, f- fully fulfilling our purpose. But if you're not taking care of yourself, you're going to burn out and it's not going to do anybody any good. So I really appreciate the book as well for really helping those like myself and others who are really trying to figure out how to do this in a healthy way. Amen. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I just, I just remember too, you can get the first chapter for free on our website billionsinstitute.com forward slash books. First chapter, see if it's for you. Thank you, Becky Margiata, for joining us on Entrepreneur Struggle. And thank you for listening. You can go to our show notes to learn more about Becky's work. Thank you to my producers, Heather Johnson and Ryan Woodhall. And until next week, stay safe and stay healthy because the struggle is real.